Good morning, everybody. It's good to be good to be in the pulpit uh, speaking on behalf of our pastor, who's enjoying some well-earned vacation today. Our first passage of scripture that to read this morning is from Jeremiah 31, and I invite you to turn there, if you would please. And I'm going to call an audible and uh, read uh, Jeremiah 31, which is a passage that's published there in the bulletin. But I'm also going to read a passage from Luke, and I'll be turning to Luke chapter uh, 19 in just a moment also and reading a passage from there. But those of you who are willing and able, I invite you to stand as we read the scriptures together, please. <clears throat> reading from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, where it says, The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. <clears throat> but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Reading now from Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, our New Testament lesson. <clears throat> he entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was glad, happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and said, He is gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, half my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek out and save the lost. This is the word of God for us today. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. <clears throat> Good old Zacchaeus. What do we know about Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was uh, a wee little man. <laughs> a wee little man was he. He climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And when the Lord came passing by, he looked up in that tree and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down. For I'm going to your house today. For I'm going to your house today. We've either sung that song to our children or our grandchildren. Uh, we sang it ourselves in Bible school years ago if you were raised in church. So what is it about the Zacchaeus story that's so appealing to children? Well, it's pretty obvious. He was short. Any child who's been to a parade 
knows exactly how Zacchaeus felt on that day. But there's something else that Zacchaeus appeals to us. There's another reason why Zacchaeus appeals to us so much. Zacchaeus, you see, was a sinner. A bold and brazen sinner. And so are we. On a few days, we might feel just like him. And on a few days also, we might be exactly like him. Tax collectors like Zacchaeus were despised as scum in the social circles of Galilee in Jesus' day. Tax collectors worked for the Romans on a contract basis. They had to offer bids to the Roman government for the right to collect taxes. The tax collector who promised to collect the most taxes won the contract. But in order to get the contract, the tax collector had to bid more than the amount actually owed by the people so that the Romans could make an extra share. Furthermore, the tax collector wasn't paid by the Romans. He was paid out of the taxes he collected, so he had to collect even more so that he could earn a living. Therefore, the only way the tax collector could ply his trade was by extorting and cheating funds out of his countrymen. And it is for this reason that tax collectors were so widely despised in Roman times. No wonder that they were the most scorned individuals in town. No wonder that observers to this event were flabbergasted that Jesus would invite himself to Zacchaeus' house. And no wonder also Zacchaeus was probably very surprised that Jesus had made himself available in this way. The Zacchaeus story is a great story of divine forgiveness and personal transformation that can result from divine forgiveness. And in our sermon text for, from, from Jeremiah, God made Israel a similar offer of forgiveness, but it's one that Israel had rejected. Some people live lives that are veritably starved of forgiveness. Our age is so self-centered and the demands made upon us are so great that we live in constant awareness of our faults and shortcomings. For some of us, our faults have caused others hurt. They've damaged meaningful relationships in our lives. Some of us are forced to deal with the consequences of mistakes we made a long time ago. And in such an age as this, forgiveness may be in very short supply. The author, Ernest Hemingway, tells a story uh, from Spanish culture about a father and son who had become estranged. The son ran away and the father set off to find him, but after months of no results, the father finally in desperation put an ad in the Madrid newspaper. And the ad read, Dear Paco, meet me in front of this newspaper office at noon on Saturday. All is forgiven. I love you. Signed, Papa. Well, on Saturday, the militia had to be called out because 800 Pacos showed up to find their father and receive his forgiveness. As it was in the life of Israel, as it was in the life of Zacchaeus, it is in our life. Forgiveness seems to be in very short supply. We're far too cynical in this life. I suppose age has done it to us. Sin has done it also the same thing to us. The battles we wage day upon day and year upon year harden us into thinking that forgiveness can't be found, that wrongs can't be righted, that there are some relationships that can't be mended. There are some people who will never change 
and there are some hurts that will never heal. But the marvelous history of the Bible is that that's not God's testimony at all. That's not the way that God works at all. God made us, and God knows us better than anybody else. God would have more reason than anyone else to give up on us because of our sin. God knows which secret, which secret sins we're never quite ready to conquer. God knows exactly what grudges we're never quite willing to relinquish. God is fully aware of every mistake we've ever made. God is familiar with every weakness and every shortcoming we possess. And despite all this, God never gives up on us because we are God's children. God has every reason to surrender us to our own foolish faults, but God does not. God certainly didn't give up on Israel. The prophet Jeremiah lived to see the worst sins of his people. He preached for 40 years, and there's no evidence he ever made a single convert. Jeremiah preached for years that God would visit the nation Israel in judgment, and one day those predictions came true. The nation of Judah fell to the Babylonians. Many of the residents of Jerusalem were taken away into exile. The capital city of Jerusalem was destroyed. It, it, its walls were torn down. Its temple was burned. Jeremiah lived through those tumultuous times. And it certainly seemed to him and to everybody else that God had finally given up on trying to get Israel to walk in the right way. Israel had broken its covenant with the Lord over and over again. So it's, it seemed to be God's patience had finally run out. So it seems the time for judgment and punishment had come, and so it seemed like Israel was beyond hope of redemption. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt as if you had sinned so badly that you were point, beyond the point of no return? Did you ever make a mistake so bad that you thought it could never be made right, no matter who intervened? There are many burdens we face in this life, many burdens we carry day by day, but few of them are heavier than the burden of guilt. We drag around all of our memories of the sins of commission and the sins of omission. We torture ourselves of all of the would-haves, the could-haves, and the should-haves of our past. And before long, we convince ourselves that we're beyond God's help. We may even dare to believe that God has given up but the marvelous news of both of these passages is that God has not given up. God does not give up. God will not give up. Israel's sins were wide and deep. And Israel had suffered for her sins greatly. But ours is the kind of God who can find something redemptive in even the worst sinner. That means us. So these are marvelous passages about the scope and the power of God's forgiveness. And it's precisely because God is God and God is not a mortal that God can keep on forgiving us and forgiving us and forgiving us long after no one else will. God will reserve some grace for us, even when we will not reserve grace for ourselves. When God's forgiveness takes hold in our lives, it's going to have some monumental consequences. The changes that God brings forth in us through divine grace spring forth from the inside out. A proper response to grace is something that begins from within and then moves beyond us. It does not simply involve a promise to do better. 
As a matter of fact, responding appropriately to God's grace will mean a lot more, not less, but more than doing better. Well, surely, repentance and more reformation should follow up upon our being forgiven by God. But what happens on our inside should be something a lot more profound than just turning over a new leaf. It's not just that. When God gives us a new chance, it will mean some important changes on the inside. Jeremiah knew that Israel would have no hope of keeping God's covenant without undergoing some profound changes on the inside. The Bible informs us uniformly that we've always been in rebellion against God. So if getting a new chance from God means simply promising to do better, then we're fighting a lost cause. We'll never defeat sin in our lives simply by deciding to do better. It's not a battle that can be won from the outside in. It's one that must be fought from the inside out. And that is why Jeremiah speaks of God making a new covenant with Israel. This passage is the only Old Testament passage that speaks of a new covenant. Through the prophet's speech, God promised Israel that God would make a new covenant with the Lord's people, and it was unlike the old covenant. The old covenant that God made with Israel was fine as far as it went. It clearly laid out what God expected of Israel. It clearly explained fully what the penalties were for disobedience. It was engraved on tablets of stone so that no one could ever wipe it out. They were written on scrolls and read on holy days for everybody to hear. They were recited daily by faithful Israelites so that all could learn them. But they didn't learn them. They wrote them, read them, recited them, even memorized them. But they did not learn them. They did not learn them because they did not live them. The reason we know that Israel never learned the written laws of God was that Israel did not keep the written laws of God. In Jeremiah, the Lord laments what had happened to this old covenant. The Israelites broke that covenant even after God had intervened mightily in their behalf again and again. So God's solution to this problem is to write the covenant on the very hearts of the Israelites. They're all going to possess, possess the law now in their inner souls. It will no longer be necessary for them to write the law or to read it or to recite it or to work on memorizing it because it will be part of the Israelites. It will be internal to them. It will be part of their very essence and they'll no longer be able to forget the law any more than they can forget their own name. Likewise, when God forgives us, God gives us a new chance. But this new chance isn't exactly like the old one. God wants us to be changed from the inside out. God wants to write God's will on our hearts. Now, those of us who are believers in this room understand that God is a forgiving God. We know this. But we do have trouble practicing the skill of knowing when we've been forgiven. How do we know that we have God's forgiveness? I think there are three tacks we should take toward this particular problem. But here are some things that knowing is not. Do we know that we're forgiven by God when we feel forgiven? Is that 
the answer? Is it when we stop feeling guilty for what we have done? No, that's a poor measure of God's forgiveness. There's no necessary correlation between God's forgiveness of our sin and our feelings on the matter. Very often, we sin and we feel like we haven't done anything wrong. Maybe a particular sin has become such old habit for us, or such old hat, that it, uh, that it sears our consciences and we're no longer aware that what we're doing is wrong. On the other hand, sometimes we feel like that we are guilty of some sin when actually we are not in the eyes of God. No, I think our inner feelings are a poor way to gauge God's forgiveness in our lives. So then how do we truly know that we've been forgiven? Here are three ways. First of all, I think we should remember that the forgiveness of God is a concept taught constantly and consistently throughout Scripture. 2 Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And as Peter claimed in the book of Acts, everyone who believes in Christ receives forgiveness of sins. There may be times when we don't feel forgiven, but the scriptures are shot through with God's promise to forgive us of our sins. We need to learn to place our hope in that promise. Second, we know we've truly received God's forgiveness when we've been energized to fulfill God's will in a way that we have not known before. Even though being forgiven doesn't depend upon a particular feeling, experiencing God's grace does elicit a response from us. And that response is something that's tangible and observable in some new way. It'll change the way we live, not out of guilt or fear, we won't change just because we've adopted some new moral code or because we're afraid of violating some moral code. <clears throat> Instead, the change will well up from within us. It'll become part of us. It'll become something that we want to do. Our experience of divine forgiveness will bring a lifestyle change for us, but it's not going to be anything that's artificial or contrived. Rather, it's going to be something that we offer to God freely as an act of worship and devotion. Which leads me to number three. We can recognize that God has forgiven us when we find the courage and strength to forgive others. Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew, for if, you, for if you forgive others their trespasses, then your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive you. At first, these words sound very, very ominous. We instantly think of every grudge we've ever held, and we begin to wonder if the Lord's ever going to forgive us of anything at all, ever. But that kind of reasoning isn't what Jesus intended. Instead, Jesus wisely saw a relationship, a basic relationship between our ability to receive forgiveness and our willingness to offer it to others. As some of us know and have learned, only those who have been forgiven are able truly to forgive others. And the reverse is just as true. Only those who are willing to forgive others can truly appreciate God's forgiveness in their lives. 
Only those who are willing to let go of their grudges against others can begin to understand God's grace. So that we see, in order for God's grace and forgiveness to become effective in our lives, we must make a response. Did you ever offer forgiveness to someone only to have them reject it? That's a pretty barren feeling. We've all felt it. And yet this is what the Lord felt when God offered Israel an opportunity for reconciliation and Israel turned its back on God, not once, but over and over again in the Old Testament. And this is how the Lord feels when God offers us forgiveness for our sins and we reject God's offer. One of the surest proofs that we have rejected God is our unwillingness to forgive others. Offering and receiving Forgiveness go hand in hand in the scriptures as well as in life. Thomas Edison was working on a crazy contraption called a light bulb. And it took a whole team of men and him 24 hours to assemble a single light bulb. The story goes that when Edison finished with one light bulb, he gave it to a young boy helper who nervously carried it up the stairs and he cradled it carefully in his hands as he walked up step by step. And as he got to the top, his worst fears were realized. He dropped the light bulb and it burst and broke. And it took another, 24, another team of men 24 more hours to make another light bulb. <clears throat> Finally, tired and ready for a break, Edison needed someone to carry the light bulb up the steps one, one more time. So he gave it to that same young man and gave him the chance to carry it up the stairs. That's true forgiveness. That's what God is doing to us each and every day. Our God is indeed a God of second chances. Zacchaeus realized this when Jesus called him out of that tree and said he was going to have dinner at his house. Israel did not realize this, even after God forgave them over and over again. The forgiving grace of Christ opened up Zacchaeus' heart. He became focused on other people's needs rather than his own. He was willing to make restitution for the evil he had caused in the lives of others. His whole life changed. And yours can too. Are you here today looking for a forgiving word from the Lord? Maybe you've borne that burden of guilt long enough. God offers you the grace and forgiveness that you must have in order to go on. I encourage you to listen to the voice of God as we move into a time of invitation. God is calling us into a new covenant with the Lord. You too can have a second chance, but you must answer God's call. You have to get out of that tree. You have to climb down. Would you pray with me, please? Gracious God, in this moment of decision, we pray that you would move among our congregation. If there are those here today who are burdened with sin and they feel this burden has separated them from you, we pray that they would sense the movement of your, of your Holy Spirit in their lives and come forward and ask forgiveness of their sin. Accept Christ as Savior and Lord and enter into a new covenant with God. We give you thanks for the chance we have to, to bow here together in prayer. And we pray that you would encourage those who are being moved to step forward. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we sing our hymn of invitation, <clears throat>
Number 586, Gene is going to be standing down front to receive those who might come. Let's all stand and we'll sing together.